This is chapter 187 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week we have another jam-packed episode for you. First up, quintessential Beach Read author Jennifer Weiner reveals why she's ready to move past summer. Author Kristen Higgins explains why she's super proud of her books make you cry. Then we salute New York with a book of haikus written by Peter Goldmark. For a lot of readers, best-selling author Jennifer Weiner is a staple of the summer season. Her stories about complicated but likable women resonate with female readers everywhere. Her newest book, centered around a Me Too incident, the pain and double standards that result, and the power of female friendships, will connect with women of all ages. She sets up that summer for us. That summer is the story of two women. One of them is a married mom who lives in the suburbs of Philadelphia. The other one is a very glamorous single lady. She's a consultant and travels the world. They become friends after the housewife starts receiving misdirected emails that were intended for the single lady. And it turns out that this intersection of their lives was not entirely coincidental, that they have some shared history. And it's a story about friendship. It's a story about surviving bad things that happen to you. It's a story about what it is to be a woman in the world and and how we still need to make things better. I think anybody who picks up the book, it's going to be pretty obvious that the whole Me Too movement was an influence. But I also hear that your daughters influenced the story. Yes. Okay. So I have two daughters. They are 18 and 13, which means one of them is still speaking to me. And the other one is like 100% out the door already. But because I have daughters, I think a lot about the world that they are going to inhabit. And is that world different than the one that I entered as an 18-year-old? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten enough better that I don't have to be terrified about sending them out there. Um, So that was part of it. That was part of the influence. And the other piece that they contributed to is there's a teenage daughter in this book who I had so much fun writing because she's such an oddball. She's such a like weird character. She she's into taxidermy and she dresses like a little old lady who's getting ready to like cross the prairie in a covered wagon. And she just doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. She's completely confident. She's completely unbothered. And I, I learned a lot about girls like that and what they like and what their hobbies are and how they dress from my daughters. And I learned that that whole movement is called Cottage Core, and I had to go look it up because yeah. I had never heard of it before. I hadn't either. So, you know, that's that makes two of us. Like, I had no idea that it was a thing, and indeed it is a thing. There's like this whole kind of movement of young women who just want to dress in like floor-length nap gowns and um, talk a lot about mushrooms and fairies and not not psychedelic mushrooms, but like the mushrooms you find in the forest. Like it is it is a whole thing. And um, I learned a lot. I love that Beatrice, who's the teenage character we're talking about, she's kind of the, the mm-hmm. book end when it comes to the generations of women in your book. And because you've got you kind of have three generations. You have the, your your two main women who are both named Diana. 
Beatrice happens to be uh-huh. a, the daughter of one. And then you've got the the moms on the other end. And there's this mm-hmm. dinner party scene in your book where the three generations of women are all sitting there at the table. And mm-hmm. they're talking about how in their own way, how they had to deal with unwanted sexual advances or even, you know, hearing about assault. And it just hit me so clearly that things really haven't changed as much as we like to think they've changed when it comes to that. That is exactly the point. And that's the thing that I was thinking about as I wrote that scene, because I feel like, so I'm 51 and certainly like my mom and and my grandmother, like that generation, you know, the rules were different and, and men could behave differently and women weren't even really, you know, it, it, they have horror stories. But my women my age have them too. And I remember when the whole Me Too movement was was really kicking off and it, it felt like every morning you woke up and you found that another guy had been canceled, quote unquote. And my husband saying to me, like, you know, I just can't believe how many women have these stories and asking me if I had one. And what I said to him was like, well, which one do you want? And he just kind of looked at me. And I think that a lot of men, even even the good guys, like even the ones that we love, our husbands and our brothers and our fathers and our sons, like they don't necessarily understand what it's like to live as a woman in the world or the fact that all of us have some kind of story. Your books often tend to feature women who, for one reason or another, have, and to use your words, lost their sparkle. Yeah. Do you think that's a sign of how far we still need to go to address these issues that you haven't run out of book ideas? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it's it's so funny, like when I remember seeing somebody like complaining on Twitter about like, why is every family that I see on TV dysfunctional? Like, why can't we just see like a nice, happy family with like a mom and dad and kids? And I'm like, because that's not very interesting. Like those people, if you're happy, you're not you don't want anything. You're not trying to get anywhere. There's no driving force behind your story. So in my case, as long as there are women who are in some way dissatisfied or who somehow realize that there's a gap between the life that they want and the life that they have, between the world that they want and the world that we're in, I'm always going to have stories to tell. I think you may have some readers out there, uh, maybe not your hardcore fans, but maybe the casual reader who's wondering if there's any relation between this book and Big Summer, which was also set on Cape Cod. Yeah. So, um, again, going back to my daughters who are super super helpful. The books are not sequels, but some of the characters show up in both of them and the setting is the same. So what my daughters tell me is they are in universe, even if they're not sequels. So you're definitely going to recognize a couple of the names. Um, the, The story of Big Summer is referenced at one point in the book. So you're going to see some links there. And I, there's a third one on the way? There's a third one on the way. Yes, my my Cape Cod trilogy, as I am very grandiosely calling it. Um, it's it's going to be, I think, like the final um, chapter of sort of the Cape Cod summer novels. And it's the story of the house that shows up in both Big Summer and That Summer. And in my third book, the woman who owns the house is getting ready to put it on the market and decides to have all of her family come back one last time to say goodbye. And hilarious 
hilarity ensues, I hope. And um, that book is going to be called The Last Summer. And then I'm done. Then I got to find another season. <laughs> oh, it's ironic that you say that because I think a lot of people associate you and your books with with summer, with beaches, with with taking your book on vacation. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> or what are I, they going to do? I don't know, man. I don't. I don't know. Like, um, I'll have to. I'll have to ease into it gradually. Like maybe maybe the next one will be like Indian summer, where it's fall, but it feels like summer. I'll have to do something like that. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to ease us into it. You're absolutely a hundred percent correct. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with Jennifer Weiner. The new book is That Summer. Thank you for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you for talking with me. You're gonna want to make sure you have a box of tissues nearby when you start reading Pack Up the Moon, the new book from Kristen Higgins. It's a heartbreaking-slash-uplifting love story of a young widower whose late wife leaves him letters to help him cope in the first year after her death. There are some laughs, but man oh man, if you're anything like me, there will be tears. A lot of tears. I asked Kristen how it feels when readers tell her her books make them cry. I'm super proud. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I always say, you're welcome. Um, I think that when someone cries over a book, it means that I did my job. I, I gave them this emotional and cathartic experience. Um, the same as when, as when they laugh out loud. You know, they're really in it. They're with the character. They're feeling those emotions. And that's everything I want to do as an author. Tell me how this heartbreaking slash uplifting love story is based on your own worst fear. Well, I have always imagined myself being a widow and I'm coming up on my 30th anniversary and my husband is outside, you know, doing some manly work with a shovel and a pickaxe right now. So, so far so good, but my dad died young. Um, He was uh, only in his forties when he died, he was hit by a, a drunk driver. And so I saw my mom become a widow when the snap of her fingers and lost my dad. And so then I married a firefighter, you know, who has one of the most dangerous jobs on earth. And I guess I have always been a little maudlin. I say I'm Hungarian and it's the song of my people is to imagine the worst. And so I guess I wanted to write a book that went there all the way. You know, um, that is the story of this beautiful couple who has a wonderful marriage. And then the worst possible thing happens. Lauren is diagnosed with a terminal disease, um, pulmonary fibrosis, and there is no cure. And the treatment is very mixed. And so she knows before she's uh, married even two years that she is not going to live terribly long. And I wanted to know, how do you, how do you live with that and not let it take over your whole life? How do you live with happiness and joy and have laughs and, and still stay in love with your husband and not have your disease take over everything? It's still a a huge reality of their lives, but at one point, Lauren says to Josh, like, I need to be more than my disease. And our marriage needs to be more than you trying to find a cure for me. Because otherwise, you know, 
what are we? What kind of couple are we? So I wanted to show a woman who could have the best years of her life under the cloud of this diagnosis. And then I wanted to show how you recover. Well, that's a bad choice of words. How you deal with the loss of your person. Joshua is, uh, he works for himself. He's a, a medical engineer, legit, super genius. And he's also on the spectrum. So he has difficulty making friends with people, reading people's signals. Lauren is really his person. And when his person is gone, it feels like the world has come to an end. And I think everyone who has lost someone like that, whether it's a child or a parent or a sibling or a spouse, you know, it just feels wrong to be alive without them. And and for Josh, that's especially acute. So Lauren knows him better than anybody, and she knows that he's going to really struggle with this. So she writes him a series of letters, uh, one for each month, to be delivered by her best friend. And each letter is uh, a note, a love note to him and um, apologizing for breaking his heart and leaving him, but also giving him a little job to do for that month because she knows you know, his instinct will be to curl up into a ball and never leave their house and, you know, forget to shower and eat vegetables. And so she gives him these tasks that send him out into the world. And bit by bit, he starts to kind of open himself up and and realize that he didn't just have Lauren, that he has these other people as well. And that while he'll never get over Lauren, He'll learn to carry that grief and let it enhance him and expand him and make his heart, his broken heart, bigger and stronger than it ever was. Whenever someone dies young or unexpectedly, I think the people left behind, they they really have this idea that if if only I could talk to them one more time, if only I could say this, mm-hmm. if only I could hear from them. I think more than maybe people who lose people, whether it's to old age or, or, or even like a very long illness. Um, and this idea of these letters, it, it just, it seems so perfect. It's such a perfect vehicle that, you know, if anyone has had anyone very close past them, you're like, God, I wish I, wish I had had a year's worth of letters, you know? Right, right. Yeah. When my when my dad died, um, I used to have dreams about him. And, and in one dream, I said, Dad, I just have so many questions. And he started, he said, Oh, I know, I've got the answers. And he started writing on these yellow legal pads that he carried. And I remember in the dream, I was sitting across the table trying to read his handwriting upside down. And I couldn't. And it, it was so frustrating, you know, to, to, like feel like my dad was about to give me an answer even in a dream form and uh and I couldn't read his handwriting which was notoriously bad um but yeah you think like you know if I could just talk to you one more time or what would dad say or what would Lauren say um you know if only I could tell my baby you know something I hope that they know that how much I loved them and and so this this idea of of Lauren's foreseeing Josh's need there, um, I think is the most loving thing she does as as a wife, as a person, you know, that she she thinks he's gonna need me and I'm gonna I'm gonna be there, 
you know. And of course, the heartbreaking part is she can't be there forever. You know, she has she has 12 letters for him. And um and you know, when it comes to the last one, she has to, you know, she's obviously alive when she's writing these, she has to face the fact that that she is going to really leave him at some point and these letters will be comforting to him, but there will be a point at which they stop. I think anyone who has lost a parent or a spouse or a best friend or a sister will will totally see themselves as well as those around them in this book because the way you manage to capture grief in all its forms, it was shocking to me because I lost, my dad died young as well and I was 19 when he passed. And the way you write the um, the relationship between Lauren and her mom and how her mom felt after her dad died, I thought mm-hmm. I was I thought I was reading my own life on the page. I was like, oh my god, there are other people who've gone through this with their moms. That this is how they feel. Yeah, you know, in some ways, you lose both parents when one parent dies because it was always mom and dad. You always had one and the other, and. You know, when my father died, my mom lost the most important role of her life, which was his wife. You know, she was that kind of wife. Um, we kids were, you know, great, but <laughs> in the background, you know, it was, it was a certain generation. Um, you had kids and you, they were free range, get out of the house and come back for supper, you know. And, um, and you know, my dad was really the center of her life. And without him, she really changed and, and she really um you know, it, it really, it really changed her. And so there was that secondary loss too. And in the book, Lauren's father dies. And, and so she has an experience with grief before her own death is on the horizon. And I think that helps her a lot. It gives her a bit more maturity and gravitas. Um, He dies when she's in college as well. um, Like you, Lisa. And, um, and I think it really, helps her become a better person. And I hate to sound, you know, too lighthearted or too easy. You know, you never want someone to die. And you don't want to say like, oh, but, you know, it changed me for the better. But you have a choice with grief. You know, do you do you let it shrink you or do you do you carry it and, and become stronger and, and maybe more raw and compassionate because you have hurt in this way? And I think it's really lovely to see Joshua becoming a more vulnerable person, becoming more open and, and just kind of noticing other people in a way that he didn't before and, and learning to accept their help and their love. Um, and I think, you know, I think one of the things I tried really hard to do with this book is also to make it funny. It is kind of my signature, um, you know, that you will laugh and cry and then laugh again, you know, and, and it's, it's not easy to do in a book about a young woman's death and her husband's journey for the, through the first year without her. But, you know, I, I know from personal experience, like, you know, that black humor has a way of, of sneaking up on you and just making life a little bit bearable for those two minutes where you're laughing, you know, or seeing something funny that your spouse would have really appreciated or your, you know, your, your loved one would have appreciated. Um, and I think too that you know, there's there's joy at being able to love someone, and grief is an expression of that joy and that love. It's it's 
definitely one of the facets of a great love is that you mourn someone so deeply. And, and I also think it's a, it's an important part of love that you can laugh with someone. And, you know, during Lauren's illness, and then as Josh is navigating life without her, you know, there are some very funny scenes. There has, there has to be, you know, in order to make it a readable book. I think the, uh, the scene in the karate studio was probably my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that was really fun to write. It was definitely uh, a joy to write that one. And, you know, there's a, a dinner party. That scene. I was going to say um, that that's a close <laughs> second. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, his first date, um, you know, attempting to interact with a woman who's not Lauren. And um, so, you know, I tried to um, weave together those strands and and uh, make the book both funny and achingly sad and absurd and relatable and, you know, just kind of keep Josh moving through that year. Uh, so it is, you know, I, I definitely feel that it's an uplifting book. Um, Publishers Weekly called it life-affirming and uh, brilliant. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm really eager for people to be able to read it and, and think, you know, this is the kind of book that will lift you up. And, you know, we need that after the couple of years that we've had with COVID. I was going to say that. Like, after this right? past year, like, I mean, there are a lot of people who lost loved ones. And even mm-hmm. if you if you didn't lose someone close to you because of COVID, this book is just, a, it's a metaphor for why life goes on and to find those small things that keep you going. Yes, yes, exactly. We've all suffered this year and some, you know, in terribly profound, acute losses of, of people very close to them. And, and, and even people who didn't, you know, we've had to confront our own mortality in a way that in my lifetime, I never had to before. And I'm 55, you know, so this idea that going to the supermarket could be the first step in your death, it was terrifying. And it really did make us, um, take a hard look at our lives and um, and I think what what we want them to mean, how much our people mean to us when we can't see them and can't hug them or can look at them through a window when, you know, mothers have to give birth without their spouses present or their parents being able to see the new baby. Everybody has dealt with something huge in the past year and a half, two years. And I do think that this is the right book at the right time to kind of show people, you know, there is a happier side in your future and it will take work to get there and it's not going to be easy and there will be horrible moments. You know, for the rest of your life, you'll miss your person. Um, you never get over it. And, you know, I do speak from experience if I've lost uh, a baby and, and my dad and, um and I, I think, you know, every day those two are with me. Every day I miss them. And some days it's more acute. And some days I think I'm a better mother because of, of what happened to my firstborn and um, a better person, a braver, stronger person because of the hardships that I've, I've been through. I take nothing for granted. And those are hard-won lessons but they have kind of made me who I am. Before I let you go, can you tell us what the significance of the title is, Pack Up the Moon? 
Yes, um, that is from Funeral Blues, a beautiful poem by W.H. Auden. And um, the first line, I'm sure, will be very familiar, Stop All the Clocks. Um, that's a, a beautiful poem that he wrote after his partner died. And it's the sense that the world cannot keep going the way it was without this person. You know, he was my, my north, my south, my east, my west. And one of the lines is, pack up the moon, dismantle the stars, because it just feels so enormous that the world is supposed to continue to spin and and there's stars that shine at night and a moon that rises. It can't happen without your person. And that profound grief and and sense of loss just was so beautifully stated in that poem that I I really um, I really it really spoke to me as a title. And it's funny I um <clears throat> I met a neighbor who had a little girl and she said, um Right after I decided on the title, and I said, what's your daughter's name? And she said, Auden. I said, after the poet? And she said, yes. I said, my new book is called Pack Up the Moon. And she quoted the poem right then and there. She said, that's why my daughter's name is Auden. And it just was such a, like a neat little wink from the universe, you know. It's a sign. Um, yeah, that I'm not the only one who, uh, who, who was moved by that poem. So... Uh, if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. I'm sure I'll post it on social media at some point. Well, I'm going to go uh, look it up after after I hit stop on this recording with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that people go and pick up this book because it is it's sad. And I know there are people out there who who will say, I don't want to read a sad story. But that's not what this is. It just it touches you to your core and I and it also makes you realize how how precious life is. So I want them to go out, pick up the book, pick up a six pack of tissues while they're at it <laughs> and, and really, you know, let allow themselves to get lost. Kristen Higgins, thank you for your time today and for for talking about this. Really, for me, it was deeply personal. I, it sounds like it, it, the story was also personal for you. And I, yeah. I know that that can be really tough to talk about and I appreciate you opening up with us thank you it was a pleasure if you're a regular listener of this podcast then you know I love to feature books about New York when I can I'm biased so sue me so of course I jumped at the opportunity to chat with Peter Goldmark a lifelong New Yorker who spent his entire career in public service to his hometown his slim new poetry book Haikus for New York City pays homage to the city so nice they named it twice in three-sentence increments. What is it about a haiku that made it the perfect vehicle for you to pay homage to life in New York City? Well, I think one thing about the haiku is it's a very tough discipline. You have 17 syllables, and whatever you're going to say, you've got to say it in those 17 syllables. But, and here's the fun part, a good haiku has a pivot at the end, a flash of humor or something you're not expecting. So in those 17 syllables, you're charging down the street, you're moving fast, and then suddenly at the end, you zig right or left, and there's a little bit of irony. So I, I find that a very good vehicle for New York, where things have many different levels of meaning. And you know New Yorkers, we're all 
you know, we like to be serious sometimes, but we really like to have a zig or a unexpected pivot at the end to catch you off guard. The subjects of the haikus in the book, they're a mix of pre and even post-pandemic observances of New York. And I hear that watching how the city responded to the COVID-19 crisis made you love the city even more. That's true. I thought it was a very special period. And one of the things that made it special is there was real danger and real uncertainty. If you cast your mind back to the spring of last year, 2020, we didn't know where we were going. There was no serious national leadership on the issue. So people in New York were turning to each other. Many, many, many neighborhoods, people reach out to actually help each other work in a food bank or make sure somebody who needed something got it. And we were improvising and doing that on on our own. And that was, I think, a very moving example of the resilience that uh, New Yorkers have. I've done in other interviews with people who've written about New York, and that seems to really be the word everyone turns to when talking about the city and talking about the people who call the city home. It's resilience. I didn't realize that uh, that was a word a lot of people use. I think it's true because it it's uh, it conveys, in one sense of the word, a little grit and determination, sticking to something. It conveys a sense of being able to bounce back when you're down not giving up, not surrendering. And it also conveys, if you think about it, the word resilient, a little bit about being ingenious and innovative. And maybe in the face of danger or difficulty, figuring out something to do that nobody's quite thought of before. And what New Yorker out there doesn't like to think they're smarter than everyone else, right? (laughs) You said it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think my favorite poem in the whole book has nothing to do with uh, with New Yorkers being resilient, but it has to do with the subway. And because ah. this is a podcast, I can read it. Good. Uh, there is a train directly behind this one, New York City bullshit. Thank you for reading that one, Lisa. Yes, who among us has not had that moment when that disembodied voice comes over the subway loudspeaker and, you know, we all shrug it off. We all learned long ago that it's not connected with the other. You know, they they just push that button. Conductor pushes that button and nobody has the slightest idea whether there's another train coming. So that's, I'm glad you like that one. That's one of my favorites too, frankly. And that's saucy. <laughs> that is the, that is the wise ass part of New Yorkers. I know you have a, a, a unique perspective about New York because I know you turned to writing poetry late and before that, You spent a lifetime in public service to the city. How does that colorize how you view it as someone who kind of made some major decisions for for things that were happening day to day? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, the answer may surprise you a little. I was very lucky and I had a wonderful public career with really interesting jobs. Um, very frankly, I could never have been happy if I'd had to make Buicks, ladies' girdles, or chewing gum as what I did in life. So I was really lucky to have these public service jobs and be able to, I had a, I ran a wonderful foundation at one point, the Rockefeller Foundation. I ran some newspapers. But the real connection between some of those high-pressure jobs and the poetry, and I, I hope this doesn't surprise you too much, is... I needed a way to come to terms with what I was really feeling and deal sometimes with the pressure and the stress I was under. 
And in public life, if you're under great pressure or if you're working in a crisis, Lisa, I had to manage sometimes riots. I had to manage a hostage situation once. You want to talk about pressure? Um, And for me, the way to work that out and to understand what I was really feeling and absorb what I had to absorb and then feel strong and move on was to write poetry privately. Now, some people paint, some people write music or sing music. Many of us have our own private way, but that's what poetry was for me. And this is the first poetry I've ever published. I had no intention of publishing. I wrote for myself privately as a way to find my own inner bearings during during periods of difficulty and real challenge. I know the book, too, is a family affair, right? Your daughter did the accompanying illustrations. She did, and it was a wonderful experience for us because it was a very casual thing. We just, I told her it's, you know, it was possibility of somebody wanting to publish a book, and would she help me with the drawings? And she said, yes, you know. She said that between one spoon of string beans and another at a dinner, it's only when we got in it and started doing it together that we each learned we were really building two different towers on the same bridge, if you want. There's a great thing about my daughter Sandra's drawings. They are not prop-up supporting drawings. They have their own life in their own presence in the book. And they are really an equal partner in the mood the book creates. And neither of us knew that's what was going to happen when it started. So it was a very wonderful and and happy experience for both of us. Tell me how uh, people who buy the book will be helping New Yorkers. Well, um, again, I had never published, so I didn't know much about this, but a couple of friends who helped talk me into publishing the book said, you know, one thing that people really like, especially during this kind of period, they look at a book and they see that it says in the cover, part of the proceeds are going to go to a charity. So the idea for which charity to give to, which is Citizens uh, for New York City, uh, came from my daughter, Sandra. I hadn't heard of them before. Then it turned out I'd, I'd met the guy who founded it back when I was state budget director. I hadn't known that. Um, but Sandra said, let's give it to them. They do good neighborhood work, and they really help neighborhoods come together in moments of difficulty. So we decided to give. Uh, now, I'm not even going to you know, break even for I don't know when after several thousand are bought, but we're going to give um, a big hunk of the proceeds uh, as they come in to Citizens for NYC, which is a really wonderful New York charity. I think people who maybe aren't from New York or people who are just passing through on a vacation don't realize how important neighborhoods are. Because I think people just think, oh, they think Manhattan is one big thing. But it's actually, you know, even Manhattan itself is broken into all these tiny little neighborhoods. And forget it when you get out into the into the boroughs and how much those neighborhoods mean to people. So I think that's really wonderful that that's something you're doing with this book. I think that's very wise what you're saying. And it's really like a it's like a whole additional dimension that's really vital to what New York City is. And as you, as you say, uh, Lisa, somebody who's just visiting or coming in for a business meeting uh, doesn't know the city at all. Well, it's hard for them to pick that up. So tell me, what's your favorite New York moment? I'm sure there are a lot of them, and it might be that might be a difficult question to narrow down. But I feel I have to ask it. That's that's a really good question. Um, I guess what I'm going to say on that one is I have several, but they're they they have a common theme. I love it when you're out on the street or there are a lot of people around, 
and you see somebody, a tourist who asks a questions or somebody who's lost or somebody who's just, you can tell, not sure what they're doing, or it's somebody who has a cane or a broken leg and is slow, not going to cross the street uh, before the light turns uh, red and the traffic comes the other way. And then you see somebody else that they don't know at all reaches out on the spot and helps them. And we've all seen that. And we've all done it once or twice, but don't even know each other. Had no idea 15 seconds before whatever the incident was happened, and suddenly one of them is helping the other. I love that about New York, too, because we get a bad rep sometimes of being wrapped up in our own worlds and rude and pushy and trying to get somewhere quickly. But while we're on our way to wherever we're going, I think a lot of us always take the time to help if we can. I think that's very well said. I think you're exactly right. And I tried to capture that in a couple of haikus, but you said it very well, Lisa. We've been talking with Peter Goldmark. The new book is Haikus for New York City. It's a delightful book. And I know as a New Yorker, I mean, there's there's no reason I wouldn't love it. And hopefully there are people out there that are we've piqued their interest. They'll go out, they'll pick it up and enjoy and get the sense of how much you love New York as well and how that comes across the pages. Lisa, you've been terrific. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we venture to the Catskills with author Alyssa Friedland, whose new novel, Last Summer at the Golden Hotel, will appeal to anyone who loves the marvelous Mrs. Maisel or Dirty Dancing. We're having the time of our lives around here, can't you tell? Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. <laughs>